This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. All right. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can't always give love the upper hand. All right. So we're back January 4th. First pod after the new year. Hope everyone had a safe, happy, and healthy new year. Brendan, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, happy new year to you, Ricky, and to everyone out there listening. Hopefully this year will be far better than last year. Uh, With that said, we're not off to a hot start yet. Uh, So we recorded our last episode, the, the 22nd, I think, a few days before Christmas, and we did the biggest stories of 2020, and and that was that was our plan to do. That would be our last you know, episode of the year because we're going to take some time off and not that they were like super busy doing this, but that we we're going to have, you know, family things and you were traveling and I was going home with my family and that was the plan at least. And to be fair to us, we stuck to that plan, but I texted you on Christmas Eve actually saying, you know, we might need to have like an emergency podcast. And you were like, ah, I think that's a good idea, but I also need to clear some things with, with the family and the girlfriend. And I, I was like, all right, fair enough. You're right. I'm glad we, you know, we should take a break. No one needs to hear our takes on anything on Christmas day. Uh, but a lot has happened in, in the last week. And just when you think that things are calming down, they very much are not. I mean, Congress was supposed to pass the stimulus, then go on holiday. Like I was, I was ready for like a pretty, you know, news-free, news-free week, news-free vacation. Yeah. Like we wrote that off the way I was talking about the stimulus last time. Actually, I I threw it to you and you're like, I have nothing more to say about it. And I was like, yeah, there really isn't a whole lot more to say. That's, I said it like it was going to be a hundred percent. It was going to be passed because that's what I thought. And all of a sudden on December 23rd, we hear Trump from his, you know, Mar-a-Lago vacation resort says, I'm not going to sign the bill, which not only was the COVID relief bill, but the, uh, which included the, the stimulus checks, and we'll get into all that shortly, uh, but also went along with the omnibus spending bill, which was going to fund the government for the next year. He said, he came out and said that he was going to uh, veto the, the NDAA, which is a Defense Administration Act that has been passed, you know, pretty much unanimously for the last 60 years. He unleashed a, a string of presidential pardons. Uh, so he certainly had a busy week. And, and, you know, unfortunately, then Congress and, and, and the media and all these regular people also have busy weeks and have to spend the holidays concerned about the president's behavior over the last week. So anyway, that's a, a long way of saying that's what we're going to talk about here at the beginning. And then we'll dive deeper or more deeply um, towards the end of the episode in terms of like what Trump has done over this last week, over these last few months, over these last few years to the Republican Party and what it really means to be a Republican at this point or even a conservative at this point and, and where where the party currently is and where it could possibly go from here, given everything that's that's has happened in the past you know few days few weeks few months few years but also everything that's about to happen this week so it's uh 2021 off to a hot start um but you can take any of those things that that trump did over the last week and and start wherever you want with those sure so i mean the like the three if we're gonna limit it to three things being the um essentially saying that the stimulus amounts were not enough um 
then you know continuing to continuing to dispute the election um, in a series of hot tweets and as we know uh, also a, a phone call uh, to a certain Secretary of State. I didn't, I didn't um, mention that. Like, there's just so much stuff. It's like it's almost it, it's like sensory overlay. It's in, mentally, how how do you even? parse all of these things we'll do it we'll do the best we can i guess yeah yeah well so the one the one that i have felt has gotten potentially like i don't want to say the least media attention but it is what you're saying it's a sensory overload and you got to pick and choose what you're going to highlight and and um what you're going to focus on and one of the um sort of <laughs> flurry of things that he unleashed in that in that week um or in the past week uh has been a string of presidential pardons. Um, So we know President Trump has done, uh, has sort of taken his own tact with the presidential pardons. Usually they go through an office where people apply and the, uh, essentially the president's able to grant clemency or pardon people who typically have, you know, actually been served poorly by the justice system or have potentially um, been able to repent or, you know, show something that show some reason that they've kind of deserved a pardon. Um, and, and the president kind of has this power, um, a constitutional right to be able to essentially pardon or grant clemency, um, to anyone who's sort of serving time under, uh, federal charges. Um, and tip, right. As I was saying, typically it goes through an office. Uh, president Trump is essentially, you know, as you would expect, said, <laughs> kind of screw all that. Uh, I'm just going to do like what I want to do. And so he's gotten some press over the years for pardoning people like Susan B. Anthony. Um, and, and I Jack think Johnson, who was Jack, like a famous African-American boxer. Right. Like, so, uh, you know, a few I will, people. I will say like prior to 2020, his he used his pardon pardoning power fairly effectively. And like those, like you say, it's it's like kind of funny, but also they are symbolic pardons and things that are far like long overdue. And so until this year, maybe even until this month, his he was using his, his pardoning power fairly safely and effectively. Um, I probably wouldn't go that far. And then, you know, well, you know, aside from a few high profile pardons that uh, people that like Kim Kardashian brought to his attention, um, he, I think, uh, as far as pardons go in terms of the number of pardons, his president, his like office has pardoned like the fewest amount of people. Um, and then the people that he's chosen to pardon, outside of some people who uh, are, are long gone um, have been people who essentially committed crimes uh, either on his behalf or they committed crimes and then separate crimes and then donated money to him. So you've got obviously the people that were all essentially caught up in uh, the Mueller investigation, like Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos was in the recent round of, um, of pardons. Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's father, uh, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, like the list really does go on. I, I'm, I'm stopping there um, because that's <laughs> that that is like an abuse of power in a way um, that should be very, very unsettling to people. But it's like in the list of the things that Trump has done, it's like it's really not. But the ones the one that I wanted to talk about today um, which I think uh, 
it's gotten probably not that much press, but is really something that that um, should be troubling to a lot of people is uh, the uh, a private security contractor group called Blackwater Water had a number of security contractors who were um, convicted of murdering civilians in Iraq, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago now. Um, this follows, so they were pardoned, uh, pardoned with, with many other folks. Um, but this, this sort of follows a, a pattern of essentially, you know, his base being a group of people who are very against um, convicting military personnel for essentially war crimes. Um, and so this is the second round of a group of people who have, who had essentially been convicted of murdering um, civilians in, in a war zone um, being set free. And uh, I, I don't know exactly, there's, you know, there's not much in terms of a, of a hot take about this, except for this is just for me, part and parcel of the way that he has uh, picked apart American, you know, you know, you have democracy on one side, but these are sort of principles of justice and um, fairness and like all sorts of other things that he is really just like tearing at the fabric of in every single which way that you can find. Um, and it's very hard to, I don't know, so like it's some of these like American ideals that we hope um can be shared across the, the world. Like you're just, just shattering them um, left and right. I don't know. I, I, as, as I do, I said a lot there. Uh, I'll let you. Yeah. I'll, I'll follow up on the Blackwater stuff before getting into some of the, the political, they're all political pardons, but the people who aided him politically. Uh, these people essentially are, are war criminals. And as, as you noted, they murdered 14 unarmed Iraqi civilians, including two, two children. And while maybe this is a larger conversation about using mercenaries in foreign conflicts, like as part of the United Nations and say what you want about that body, like we agree to a certain set of standards that we are going to punish war criminals. And we did that effectively because the, these men were convicted in a, in a court of law and, and they got their sentences and then for Trump to come along and pardon them. And I, I don't know if you saw the last couple of days, one of them has given a series of interviews where he pretty much said like, I did the right thing. Like, I don't feel badly for what I did. And I, I'm sure there is, he does have a, he has his truth there, but that's not what the court of law found. And to pardon these men to commute their, their sentences, as you said, it's, it's a blow to justice here in the United States. Uh, which uh, like we'll get into this later of, I believe that the Republican Party, that conservatives should stand for the rule of law. I believe that we have for many, many years and Trump has been the antithesis of that as, as president for four years. And this is just the latest example of it, but it's more on, on a global scale. You know, if, if, if you are really anyway, the, the Iraqi family members of these people were outraged, understandably so. I just don't know the United States for a long time, rightly or wrongly, has been able to claim the moral high ground of we are a country of freedom and democracy and justice, while so many of these other countries where we have been in, you know, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, Afghanistan under the Taliban, I mean, Vietnam under their communist regime, like we can go on and on, right, where we can say at least we are in the right. It's hard, 
it's hard, going to be really hard to rebuild whatever reputation, whatever positive reputation we had worldwide when he has attacked notions of democracy in our country, enabled anti-democratic forces within and abroad, and now is attacking fundamental, you know, systems of justice that generally speaking, most of the world has agreed upon. Yeah. And, and this is, um, and this is another area where it's like, almost like, did Trump actually do us a favor? Because I think you're right. I think a lot of people have had this perception that America is like a, you know, I think the Navy slogan was like a force for good. And that is how we have always kind of positioned ourselves in conflicts like, you know, the Iraq war being, all right, first it was for weapons of mass destruction when not, but at least we went and got rid of a dictator, right? Okay, true. But we also had like a lot of oil interests and that there's a lot of reasons that, you know, (laughs) that nothing about the Iraq war actually made us like uh, have the moral high ground other than we sort of said that we did. And we pointed out some reasons that what, whatever, you know, whoever we were against were, were bad people. Um, well, at least we could make the case that like, hey, the world and this country is better off without a brutal dictator there. I think I can't imagine there are many people out there that are big Saddam Hussein fans, right? Whether or not it was our responsibility, our place to go in and, and remove him, happy to have that conversation too. But say we can at least say that your country is better without this man in charge. But when we take this man out and then we murder all these civilians and then let them out, let the the guilty perpetrators of of that massacre out, that claim has less basis than it ever did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I totally agree that it had less basis than it ever did. I think in a a way it is though exposing um, some of what in, in like in so many different avenues, his presidency has taken out that like benefit of the doubt that like, oh, people in the government or, you know, these actions that we're taking that we're voting on and things like that are all um, at least they are believed to be for like the, the greater good. Um, and I think I think he's kind of dispelling a lot of that. I mean, certainly th- this is a horrific crime um, that has occurred and and. To, to sort of let these people off for that, you know, flies in the face of how America governs its own society. So you can't, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous to believe that this doesn't apply somewhere else. Of course, it goes back into the, the, the same notion of like black lives and brown lives, like not mattering to the same extent, right? Like there, there, there are shades of that um, in there as well. But I, I guess um, when I when I think about it in the grand scheme, right, there were hundreds of thousands of civilians killed in these two conflicts, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. This, in a weird way of, of Trump doing this, it sort of brings that back to the fore. Um, and I, <laughs> as terrible as I think it is, and as terrible as I think um, what we have done in there in general is, and, you know, notwithstanding what you said about Saddam Hussein being a horrible dictator, that is true. Iraq being better off today than it was 20 years ago, that I I would strongly debate you on that one, um, because 
you know, as a society, they have a lot of uh, problems today. There was just a big power void um, and it hasn't really been filled by the democracy that we sort of hope to, to sow or, or, you know, whatever it was that we were doing there. Um, but yeah, it is just kind of dispelling that myth of, not myth, but, but sort of, yeah, the image that we are uh, casting abroad. I feel like I'm, I'm taking this in a total different direction than, than when I set out to, to make a comment about it. Um, but it is, it is that, like, I don't, it's the same thing. Like, is Trump the, the problem here or is he really just like the spearhead and, and everything else is, is, is actually underlying it? <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't have a, a great re response to that. I think that's something that we'll be debating and historians, historians will be debating for years, if, if not decades, uh, but he has exposed a lot of the things that ail the United States. Um, when he ran, you could say he exposed, he was, you know, theoretically exposing them for good, being like, there are a lot of issues that we thought, you know, maybe we were beyond that he he brought to the forth, to the, to the fore. And uh, I think over these last four years, particularly over this, you know, these last couple of months, he, he's highlighted some other systemic issues that we have in a really negative way. But I mean, we're, we're all going to have to deal with the fallout from this, like I said, for years to come. And you know, I, I appreciate you bringing up the the Blackwater pardons because I wasn't going to the, like the the pardons that stood out to me and to your point got the most media coverage were you know Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and, and Paul Manafort and, and those sorts of characters who enabled and essentially lied for Trump and, and took their their sentences. Uh, and it's just Trump is not the first to to abuse this power it it just seems that he is doing it the most blatantly you know i remember i actually like remember this at the time when clinton pardoned like 140 people at his very last day in office including like his brother and like a billionaire fugitive and so it's it, trump is not the first to do this he just as usual has done it the most nakedly if these are people that have helped me and i'm now going to help them and it really just makes a mockery of the justice system and the department of justice and all of the the government officials and lawyers that had worked so hard to try to get justice for you know this country that these people in some ways some more than others are were convicted of really being like traitors to the country a flynn i mean flynn in particular but now he, he's just gone and undone all of their hard work and it's just it's the latest or maybe not even the latest, but another of the blows to our justice system that I think just cast increasing doubt on you know, the, the fairness of our institutions. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a depressing way to start, but whatever. The whole, the whole Happy New Year, right? Yeah, exactly. Happy New Year. But the whole situation is depressing. We don't want to start like this. Like he he does these things and forces us to react to them. Um, so let's go back to the, the stimulus bill, which again, we had we had thought was done, uh, signed, sealed, delivered. And the reason, at least I thought that was because we finally got, you know, the big four, we got uh, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, the, the leaders of for the Republicans in the Senate and the House. We got um, Pelosi and Schumer, the leaders on the Democrats in the House and the Senate. And we got the Trump administration led by uh, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, uh, all finally got together, wrote up this bill. This is what the all the sides had agreed upon. This is what the Trump administration asked for. They finally hammer out the language of it. 
they send it to the, it gets passed in both houses, sent to the president, and he says he's not going to sign it because he wants $2,000 stimulus checks, even though his his administration only asked for $600. And I, I guess I'm not, we've talked about this before, and maybe we can have this debate again if you want, like about whether or not we should have given bigger stimulus checks or not, but it just, it again, it, it, it was just made a mockery of all of the work that his own administration had done to get this to get this deal to this point, it threw unemployment benefits for a number of like gig workers that all of a sudden they might not be there after Christmas. Uh, the stimulus checks, you know, we were people were counting on at least six hundred dollars, and now if without a bill, no one gets any money. Like some of the unemployment benefits, like I said, start to run out, and it was just everything was in chaos, which is, I suppose, a fitting way to end end his term there. Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> I got to say, it was very interesting, not interesting, but, uh, you know, for once, Democrats were all like, oh, this is great. <laughs> we'll go back. Yeah, plus, you immediately guess the, house, guess the house back together. More money for everybody. Great. Like, and, there's, and this is going to go to the point that we, we're going to get into more later, where he's just tearing the Republican Party apart. Because, again, a traditional conservative belief, in my opinion, is smaller government and not necessarily just cutting checks for huge amounts of money. Like if in, I think um, Senator Rand Paul said something along these lines where, you know, if it's, if, you know, 600 is enough, who's to say 2000 is enough? Let's give them 5,000, 10,000. Like if it doesn't matter and where we're just going to print money anyway and give it all, give everyone money from the government, why stop at 2000? Let's just give money to as much money as everyone needs. Like, and I'm sure many Democrats would be like, yeah, you should do that. But I mean, Trump has just completely, and it's because he was starting to get, people are starting to abandon him, whether it was McConnell or John Thune, uh, John Thune, the, the number two uh, senator from South Dakota. He Trump basically came out and endorsed challenges to them and was doing things really just to, to screw people who he felt screwed him. And I don't think he's doing it for any particular because he cares about people like that he that he thinks that people really need two thousand. He knows that two thousand dollars is going to play really well to lots of people. That sounds great to everybody, but he's not doing it for them. He's doing it to stick it to all the Republicans that have started to abandon him. Yeah, I mean, and and it's also just like you know, what's an unexpected move I could make to make sure that I stay front and center headline news like. Oh, you think you guys have agreed upon this just because I said this last week or just because right. like, you know, my, this came out of my office. Forget that. <laughs> right. And I, to Biden's credit, and he basically came out and said this was like, they know and they like uh, congressional Republicans, they know I'm not going to lie to them. Right. If I say I'm going to do something, I will do it. They may not like the things that I'm going to say. We might not agree on a whole lot, but they know if my administration negotiates in good faith, I'm not later going to say like a week later, say, I actually, no, that's no good and blow everything up. Because I, I, I mean, I do think there are many, probably including McConnell, that almost welcomes a Biden administration. At least you, you can know you can work with an enemy that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to work with an enemy that's trying like calling itself your ally and then stabbing you in the back. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the best thing for Democrats at this time where, you know, they've had very public sort of tug of war between the progressive wing um, and the whatever centrist moderate uh, wing wings of the party that sort of people point to it and say, you know, you're not really one party, two, two different factions 
have like maybe similar sort of social beliefs, but in, 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 from a governance standpoint, kind of believe very different things. Um, now you've got, I think tr the best part of Trump from, uh, uh, the perspective of someone, uh, you know, <laughs> who is sort of, you know, who doesn't have a favorable view of the Republican party in, in any sense from either fiscal or social sort of leanings is watching Republicans kind of twist themselves into pretzels, trying to figure out like, all right, how am I going to say this? I don't want to anger the base, but I want to make sure I don't want to anger the president. I don't want him to come after me. But like, also this is like very anti-Republican. Like, what do I do here? <laughs> yeah. And I would counter by saying, arguably that's one of my, like the worst things that he's done in, in these four years. He's, he's absolutely torn the party asunder. He's done it in my opinion, since he announced his candidacy from you know the moment he was elected, but he is, in my opinion, explicitly doing that over over this last month, and probably will continue doing it for these next sixteen days. So like, when we come back, let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know what it you know what it means to to be a Republican or a conservative in a in a country in a party dominated by Donald Trump. A long December. There's reason to believe Maybe this year will be better than the last So I've been, I've been asked, I guess, by a, a, a few listeners and friends um, to do this segment sort of for a while. So this is kind of the, what does it mean to be a conservative in 2020 and 2021? Um, I think in large part, it comes from a, a place that I have felt over the years of our friendship, sort of seeing things either, you know, and this predates Trump, um, but has certainly uh, been amplified or, or uh, you know, grown exponentially under the Trump administration, but essentially like seeing things come out of the Republican party um, and wanting to turn to uh somebody who is a conservative, somebody who, I, you know, uh, kind of identifies as a Republican, if you will, um, to, to like have them answer for, you know, you know, how can you believe this? How, how is it possible that this is um, what you think? And, you know, a, a large part of how I've reconciled it um, is that in many ways, it's like, it's like asking, um, somebody who is um, a Muslim after you see a terrorist attack uh, perpetrated by, you know, whatever, so-called um, Muslims or, uh, you know, how do you, how do you ask them about how they feel about it? And it's like, well, they feel about it the same way that you might feel about it. If it's sort of like a, a crime or something horrible, just because, you know, they're potentially part of this larger umbrella does not mean they subscribe to everything that happens under it. And I think, <clears throat> potentially that, you know, the same could be said for Democrats. Not, I'm quite aware that that anal analogy is not going to hold for, you know, a number of different reasons, but um, I think it's fair to say, or to ask you that like, if you're not to use the words like conservative or Republican, what are sort of the values that you think about um, that you want to see in our political system when, um, when you think about sort of, you know, what party you uh, find yourself in? 
Yeah, no pressure answering this question. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, you're not like you're speaking for all Republicans, but you might be because I don't know. So I'll try to trace my history with Republicanism and conservatism for a little bit uh, before, you know, coming back to your original question of what does it mean to be a conservative in 2021? Uh, so the Republican Party, when I signed up at 18, as you know, I registered to vote and all excited and I registered as a Republican, wasn't to me, it wasn't even a choice at, at the time. So this is you know, almost 15 years ago now. Uh, at the time, the Republican Party to me, and again, I was young, so I, I definitely didn't understand all of the nuances. And I'm sure this isn't as black as and white as I'm going to make it seem, was a party of fiscal conservatism and social conservatism. Uh, and while my personal views on some of those things have changed over the years, and I'm happy to talk about that too, it, it felt very much like if you were, you know, deeply and truly religious, um, particularly Christian, uh, and some of the hot button issues at the time were very much uh, gay marriage or anti-abortion. Um, and some of that has, you know, now evolved into whether it's, it's trans rights or uh, other sorts of rights, but kind of that social conservatism and, uh, fiscal conservatism and believing in small government, lower taxes, more personal freedoms. It, it felt like the Republican Party was home to to all of those coalitions, whether you believed one of those things strongly or both of those things strongly. It, it felt very much like for me having, you know, honestly feeling both of those beliefs pretty strongly at the time uh, that it wasn't even a question. And that, that's definitely changed over the years as parties you know, change and evolve. Both the Democratic Party and Republican Party have been around for you know 150 plus years at this point, right? And like their views have very much changed over time. And uh, even when I was young, like still being aware of, I was very disappointed in a lot of the bailouts that happened at the end of the Bush presidency. And uh, while that's like a much like larger discussion, I didn't think that was a good precedent to set. Um, Obama's election, and then basically you get the, the Tea Party and the, and the Freedom Caucus come along which generally speaking, I, I kind of agreed with the, the original movement. Um, there was a, a representative from Michigan. He actually just retired at, at the end of this past year, um, Justin Amash. I don't know if you've heard of him, um, was the original member of the, the House, the Freedom Caucus. And they were really pushing kind of in, in response to what happened at the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration for more of a smaller government and a return to really what I consider like libertarian values. I think that movement's been corrupted uh, by people like Jim Jordan and, and um, Mark Meadows and Mick Mulvaney, who I, I no longer feel like our values align. Um, but Amash, you know, I don't know, again, became a, a libertarian in in a couple of years ago and was pretty much like, yeah, I don't align with this original movement that I started either. So whatever, I, I just felt like those were kind of the original, the core building blocks of Republicanism. And I, I will say that whether it's, you know, free trade, I think was a very re like Republican uh, belief for, for many years of the rule of law, even amongst immigration, like we, I think there's more room for legal immigration, but cracking down against illegal immigration, I, I think was a, a conservative belief. I, I think there has to continue to be room for socially conservative beliefs, uh, whether or not I agree with those personally anymore. I do think that the conservative movement should have room for those beliefs. Uh, 
constitutional rights, uh, very much in including, you know, you know, protecting free speech and protecting uh, the Second Amendment, your, your right to, to bear arms, like those are things that I, I still believe are really important. I believe that, you know, taxes should be low, that government should, uh, whether this year hasn't reflected uh, very well on this personal belief of mine, but like that people should mostly be allowed to make their own decisions and live their lives free from government um, oversight and, and interference. I believe that Republicanism, conservatism should be a party of opportunity. And I don't necessarily believe that it is now, but that we're not dictating outcomes, we're dictating processes. And I believe Republicanism, conservatism should be a process party where we should endeavor to give all Americans every opportunity possible to succeed or fail on their own and understand that people are not going to succeed. Some people are going to succeed and some people are going to fail and they're not going to succeed at the same levels. And that doesn't bother me at all. Some people like I, I'm a huge believer in capitalism. I do think capitalism is the greatest economic system ever invented and that we're really lucky to have it in this country. And while some people will succeed, others will fail. And that's fine with me. My problems are with this country systemically that we don't give people the right amount of opportunities. I think that's where the Republican Party should focus to make sure that everyone has equal opportunities. I don't think it's necessarily doing that currently, but that would be my goal for it. Uh, I've said a lot. I'm cool to keep going if you're cool to keep listening. I'm, well, you're on a roll. Rumble on. All right. So again, Republican up until 2016. And I, I mentioned this many episodes ago. So maybe we have new listeners or maybe people just didn't or are curious about this where the Republican you know, primary plays out and... Donald Trump was like a sideshow freak show clown uh, to steal like a happy Gilmore line I, for for months. And I didn't love any of the candidates, but I liked Rubio. Um, I liked John Kasich. I, I, um, I, I mentioned last week that Rick Perry, when his candidates first started, his candidacy first began, I, I was interested in him. Scott Walker, I thought was an interesting candidate. And Jeb Bush, like none of these people I was like gung-ho for, but I thought they were all legitimate candidates who believed slightly different things within the conservative mainstream. Um, and I would have been happy to really see any of them become president over Hillary Clinton. Uh, once it became clear that the finalist, that Trump was the overwhelming favorite and that Senator Cruz was the, the number two choice, and it was that summer of 2016, maybe in June or July, where I was like, well, this party doesn't reflect my beliefs anymore. And I have a lot of respect for people that have stayed in the Republican Party who believe the same things as me and reject, you know, Trumpism and we're kind of the never Trumpers, but say that I need to stay and fight for the soul of the Republican Party. A ton of respect for those people. For me personally, I just couldn't look at leaders like that and say that in any way that I was going to endorse that kind of that kind of leadership, that kind of stewardship of the conservative movement. So I, I became an independent, but I continue to work. Like I've mentioned before, I did campaign politics for a year. I worked for Republican candidates, people that I felt were um, largely, particularly in Massachusetts. I worked for a woman named Beth Lindstrom, who I, I thought was excellent and still believe would potentially be an excellent candidate, a moderate Republican. And we, we've certainly, whether it's Governor Baker, going back to Governor Romney, like Massachusetts, there is room for moderate Republicans to be elected to statewide offices. Uh, even the first couple of years of Trump's presidency, while I thought the guy was, I, I'm hesitating to use some of these words, but uh, while he was, I really would say a, a bad person to his core, right? And, and was doing some things that I thought were, were borderline despicable. Uh, 
I also thought that he was doing some good things. I mentioned this to you offline, but I, I, I really believe that if, if he was, if the presidential election happened 2018 or even 2019, he would have been reelected. The, you know, the stock market was, was soaring. Unemployment was at all time lows. He was following through with a number of the promises he made in terms of reimagining America's role abroad, redoing trade agreements. Um, what well, he redid NAFTA was uh, becoming tougher on China, tougher on Iran bringing our troops back home, all of these things. There were good things in my opinion, I was happy. And so I could kind of separate Donald Trump the man from some of the things that he was doing in his administration. And I, again, I was pleased through, through 2018, even 2019, uh, his handling of the coronavirus, I, I've totally disagreed with. Uh, the rhetoric, I think, because it was an election year was, was even worse. Uh, but really these last couple months, I think have really proven just how little, and this is nothing that I think most people didn't already know, but like how little he cares for, you know, American systems and American democracy and justice and the conservative movement in general. And for him to have divided this party the way he has and, uh, and really on his way out, just, just like I said, like torn it asunder. Uh, and I don't know, I've said for, for years now that I do feel like there's room for like a third party system. I don't think the Republican party is going anywhere, but I just don't understand how, you know, people like Romney or, um, or Toomey or McConnell or even Rubio, you can say what you want about those guys. You might not like them, but Murkowski, Collins, people I have great respect for. I don't know how they can share it. They can caucus with people like Cruz or Holly anymore. So We'll we'll come back to that point at the end. I think about where do we go from here as as conservatives as Republicans. But all right, I, did did I answer your question? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, you know, for once you you've said a lot, and and I'm I'm trying to pick and choose, you know, where I want to, um, you know, what I would like to address. I think, you know, starting with the core beliefs and kind of small governments more of like you know allow states to to figure things out um and really uphold the uh, broader processes as kind of a as, as sort of foundational in conservatism i think these are values or um there I, I hesitate to say beliefs but they're they're things that people who identify as Democrats um, could potentially get behind. I think the, I think uh, certainly where you start to lose a lot of uh, other people is on the kind of the, there's a incongruence for a lot of people between the uh, sort of liberal live and let live kind of idea of conservatism with the Oh, but no gay marriage. Also, you know, if, if you're transgender, no, not that either. And like a lot of other things that people are like, well, how do you, I'm, I'm, I thought we were less government, but you're telling me more government there, there are those sorts of things. And then of course, boom, 20, I mean, not really boom, 2016, you're right. Like starting with the tea party, um, there have been a lot of machinations of like, now it's unclear, like what we're talking about, right? Like the Trump tax cuts and the idea of before sort of fiscal conservatives see and, and deficits being important, all of a sudden uh, deficits don't matter anymore. <laughs> um, and, you know, potentially that's something that we learned maybe in the last 20 years, our deficit continues to balloon. There's no inflation. Maybe deficits don't matter anymore, but certainly that was kind of the core 
keeping you know your house in order and a balanced budget, whether at the individual level or at the federal level. I know you personally, that's something that you've always preached, um, you know, of our, of our friends, uh, you know, saving for your own house and doing, doing those kinds of things, um, kind of responsibly, whereas idiots like me <laughs> have, have a fairly decent jobs, still somehow manage live paycheck to paycheck. I won't, uh, <laughs> won't go too, too far into that, but, but I, I, you know, what I wanted to get out of this, I guess, was like, if you're making a pitch to somebody for why, um, you know, why conservatism isn't, or like why Republicanism isn't the kind of the boogeyman um, that, that people on the left and like, you know, why is it hard to be a Republican today? Certainly, you know, when your figurehead, when the president does a lot of the things that he does, it's difficult, but there are some values there um, that people should be able to agree with. And I think you articulated very well. Right. I mean, I've always felt this and this was, you know, not to make this too much about us, but like kind of one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast was to show that as much as you know, we spend nights like yelling at each other and we're like seem to be totally on opposite sides of the spectrum, we're really not. And this is where I always thought that there is a a, a space for a third party, which again, I don't think our current system really allows for with the with the money in it and how everything is so established and how reluctant the two main parties are to cede any power to third party candidates at all at any level. Uh, but a moderate conservative, and I increasingly think this moderate Democrat, if you look at the increasingly liberal wings of the party with the identity politics and uh, the increased calls for socialism, like, I mean, you're one of the main candidates, Bernie Sanders is an avowed democratic socialist, right? Like this isn't just like a boogie word that people are throwing around. He, he and many of his followers firmly believe these things. I personally believe that's very like, un-American so like I I do think like not only that my third party I envision is not just the Collinses and Romneys and Murkowskis of the world but it's also the you know the the normal what I call normal democratic senators like and uh, like like the mansions of the world and I'm I'm sure I could come up with more if if I needed to but I, I I do feel like there are there's like common ground honestly, more common ground between moderates of both parties than there is with the the crazy nutjob wings of both parties. Yeah. So, but this, this was potentially the thing that, that I had, I, and I took big issue with you for it then in like 2016 and 17. Um, and I still take issue is sort of for me putting Bernie Sanders on the, on par with Donald Trump. And I, and I had asked you back then, I potentially will ask you again, and I will ask you again now. Um, you know, I had said that I thought just based on how the election turned out, like which states Donald Trump was able to flip and why, uh, you know, and how Hillary Clinton lost, that I thought if Bernie Sanders had been the candidate for the Democratic Party, a lot of that free trade stuff he was talking about as well, um, renegotiating NAFTA, uh, you know, uh, axing the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, those are very similar, but from a very different tact, um, uh, campaign promises that Sanders was making. And I sort of put forth in front of you, you know, do you think Bernie Sanders would be worse for the the United States as a, as a president than Donald, Donald Trump? Now, granted, this was 2017. Trump hadn't really done anything yet, but this is, you know, fast forward, here we are, 2020. Um, do you still 
uh, feel the same way. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I said at the time I thought Bernie Sanders would have gotten absolutely smoked. And I think if Sanders was the candidate this time, he would have gotten absolutely smoked. Uh, like, I, I, I feel confident about both of those opinions. Uh, this is this is a tough question because, yeah, in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, I would have said for sure, I 100% that Bernie Sanders would have been far worse for the country than, than Donald Trump was. And because... I really do believe that, and I, I said this already, but that socialism is fundamentally against the, the true beliefs of democracy and capitalism that I believe the nation is founded on and should continue to run that way. And I, I don't think those- But Donald Trump has been anti-democratic. He has been- Okay, fine, totally agree. So that's why this last year I think has is, is a, that's when it's a, a fair question where it's like, if it was Sanders or you know, certainly much you know, more likely would have been Hillary Clinton, they would have handled this pandemic in a much better fashion, I believe. Um, and given Trump's behavior over these last few months, it, it's like, I, I mean, I've said this multiple times in this podcast, it's, it cuts at the foundations of American democracy, which was my concern originally about Senator Sanders. Uh, it's hard now. I, I don't that, know the cat, that capitalism is more foundational to our democracy than democracy is. Or more foundation to our like nation, our nation's identity than democracy is. No, no, it, it's not. And that, but like, I think it, I could have at least argued that as, as bad as he was, Trump was before 2019, he wasn't necessarily anti-democratic. Like again, you could say that he was bigoted or potentially racist. Or uh, I mean, he's been call, he's been calling fraud since day one. This is not. This is right. not true. just the only difference is now he's losing elections and he's still calling fraud and now he's louder about it. Right. I, but I mean, we, we mentioned this, you know, a couple months ago too, where it's, it's a little different when, you know, some of the rhetoric four years ago is different than when you're the president now. And I, yeah, I was really hopeful, honestly, that, that Trump, like I said, I, I didn't vote for the guy, uh, never, never liked him, but I was hopeful that things were going to go well. And for a couple of years, I did think things were going pretty well. This, yeah, this, it's hard to say that anybody would have been worse than Donald Trump over these last few months. Yeah. Well, all right. So I think, I think we will have um, in the subsequent, I didn't, I didn't challenge any of um, sort of your, the like sort of the Trump victories here, um, but I would like to, and I think we'll, we'll spend some time doing that, but maybe uh, when we come back, we'll just wrap with, um, today's Republican Party, um, their split and, and where they go from here, whether you're a part of it or not. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Cause I'm the tax man. All right, so I think we'll wrap today on on put on what is potentially like the last last ditch effort um, to to we save this election for Trump, or it could already be decided. It's more of just like a grand gesture to Trump's base by a few. Anyways, I'll let you I'll let you get into it. Yeah, I would say careful, as we've noted before, of saying it's the last ditch effort to do anything. So if you listen to this is going to be a, a winding segment here. But if you listen to President Trump uh, was had a phone call with the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, on Saturday that was taped without the president's knowledge, 
which is legal under federal law, and then released to the Washington Post uh, just yesterday. And Trump pretty much said that, like, I will fight this pretty much. I mean, he doesn't say it in the world's words, but he's pretty much, I'm going to fight this to the death. Like, he, he, this is not something like January 6th, theoretically, is the last chance to challenge these elections. But given that it seems wildly unlikely that anything is going to change, I think Trump will be litigating this case both in courts and in public for years. I don't, I don't think it's the last time right here, but this is maybe to your point, the last time constitutionally that someone's going to be able to challenge these elections. So January 6th is an important date because that is when Congress is supposed to essentially certify the election results. And as we talked about this podcast before, uh, all of the states have done this and now it goes to Congress. And traditionally that's Congress essentially, or the president of the Senate, which is the vice president of the United States. So Mike Pence will, will read out the votes and of the electors of the different states. The electors have already voted almost a month ago now. December 14th was the date they had to certify, each state had to certify their elections. And we will have a new administration, a new president and vice president. Yeah, this is typically uh, a formality. It is. All right. So let's, let's trace the history of this a little bit. So uh, 1876, we have up in which what was up until 2000 or 2020, the most contentious election in American history. I guess you could argue the 1826 election or 1828 election, uh, 1824 election. That was the one that Jackson should have won, but got tossed to to John Quincy Adams. Whatever, we're not gonna touch on that one right now. Uh, But 1876, uh, Samuel Tilden, Democrat, wins uh, almost 51% of the vote and 184 electoral votes. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, wins 160 electoral votes and about 47% of of the vote. Uh, Unfortunately, there are three states that, and let's see which ones they were. Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina had disputes about their electoral votes. Those states conveniently added up to 20 electoral votes. So if Hayes got all of those states, it would be 185, 184. Closest election in American history. What happened in those three states, uh, Florida, South Carolina, and and Louisiana, was that both parties said that their candidate had won their electoral votes. And so the Republican Party was saying Hayes won this state, and the Democratic Party was saying Tilden won this state. And it was a mess. And so no one really knew what to do. We we don't have a winner, and both states are, are certifying or swearing that their candidate wins. So what happened at the time was that there was a big compromise where they would throw all of those states to the Republican haze in exchange for taking out all of the Reconstructionist troops out of the South. So that's pretty much the end of Reconstruction in 1876. All of the the federal troops leave the South, which leads to really history, you know, a hundred years. Yeah. I suppose it should be noted that the Democratic Party at this time is like the Dixiecrat Party and the Republicans are like the actual Lincoln Republicans very, right. very well. Yes. Well, very. it's like we, it's like I said earlier, right? Things things have very much changed over time. Yeah. Um, anyway, so after after this absolute disaster, Congress was like, "All right, we got to try to fix this." We never really saw a situation in which both parties would be claiming their candidate won a state. So they pass, you know, they pass a, the election law. It's called the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and in it, it puts in place all of these procedures to ensure that this situation never happens again. So at this point, it forces the state 
in the governors to certify all their individual election results. And then it gives Congress this final step to certify the election results just to prevent, to make sure <laughs> ideally that there's no controversy, right? Like that, that the point of this is really to rubber snap or all, were the, were the counts all, all good and legit. And for many years, this never comes up. So a little history, which I wasn't totally aware of now is that it's happened or close to happening has been close to happening a, a few times in, in the recent past. So in 2000, obviously we had Bush v. Gore, which was which went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court really decided it. Uh, but the House Democrats tried to challenge it in obviously in, in the House. But you need at least one member of the House and one member of the Senate to object. And you what they do is they object to a certain state. So in the House, they were objecting in 2000, they were objecting to Florida's electoral count. And they were going to challenge that and say, hey, this Florida count is no good. We need to go back and, and recount. And then theoretically, it could, could have swung to, to Gore. Um, no Democratic senator stood up. 2004, Democrats tried the same thing um, over Ohio's vote counts. And they actually get a senator, Barbara Boxer, a former senator from California, but it's quickly quashed. There's not nearly enough support. Both houses ratify. Uh, in 2016, House Democrats again tried, but no, no senator would stand for them. And Vice President Biden at the time said, hey, this is over, like enough of this. And he quashed it and went through with the election results, even as he was handing the power over to a President Trump in a president, you know, a Trump administration that had was arguably openly racist towards his boss and one of his good friends, President Obama. Uh, things are a little different this year. Uh, House Republicans had, had threatened for a couple of weeks now to object to certain states' votes. And they're not limiting it to one state because obviously one state wouldn't do it. They're planning to object to the votes of several states and challenge those votes, um, including Georgia, Pennsylvania, I would imagine Michigan, maybe Florida. No, we don't need Florida. Uh, so I, I, they're planning on, yeah, they're, they, uh, they're planning on challenging those states' votes. And for a couple of weeks, it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere because they needed a senator to step up. You need to have a challenge in both houses, uh, in both the, the House and the Senate. But last week, uh, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri stepped up and said he would also join and challenge those results. He was quickly followed by Senator Cruz from Texas and 10 other senators or senators elect. So there's a group of at least 12. I wouldn't be shocked if that grows where they're going to drag out this process on January 6th to try to challenge the certified results of several states in order to potentially get at least an investigation, if not overturn these results. Yeah, right. Like Cruz, I think, has said that he needs a commit. They want a committee to study these. I mean, Cruz is is an interesting one. Um, I was thinking about him today. I have no idea what he believes anymore. Dude, he doesn't. But he never. The guys. Like, all right, I'm gonna calm down. I'm just to say what I, what I wanted to say, which was that uh, when Cruz beat Trump in the Iowa caucuses um, in 2016, Trump alleged fraud, and Cruz basically said something to the effect of like, this is what Trump does when he loses. He, you know, cries foul play. Like it's, it's just like part and parcel of what it is. Of course, Cruz, Cruz ends up losing the rest of the way. And then, you know, the rest is, the rest is kind of history, but he said something like, a, I mean, you know, he was one of those 
at one point, a never Trump kind of Republican that turned into a loyal lapdog, like so many others of the Republican Party. And I think one of the elements of this that is so interesting um, is really kind of what you were saying about, well, you know, I, I, you know, I hoped he would kind of grow into the office. I hoped, uh, I think a lot of those hopes were put on, well, there, you know, there are a lot of longstanding Republicans around and people who, you know, you would hope would have the sense to stand up and be adults. And like when he's doing crazy things, right? Like we have a system that has these checks and balances between, uh, you know, the, the judiciary, the, um, the, the legislative branch, um, and the executive branch, right? Like there are designs in there for like, if anyone is getting out of hand, there are ways that the other two can kind of be like, Oh, you know, what are you doing? Let's, let's calm down here. And let's, you know, we have rules and we have all this in place for a reason. And this is, I, it just feels like such that like perfect culmination of, of why, you know, as sacrosanct as our democracy is and as, um, as impressive as it is, you know, that it stood the test of a civil war and um, many other, uh, and, you know, a civil rights movement and many other conflicts and uh, events that were really sort of tearing at the fabric of it, that it is still so susceptible to one person that, that wields a, a, a certain amount of like unwavering influence with a small base, but a base that's big enough that in our political system, is like worth, you know, kind of uh, kowtowing to. I don't know what the right words are, but it's like there is nothing here for Cruz other than to get a pat on the back from DJT being like, "Good boy," like you know, you did you did good, even if nothing happens. And he knows that that's another ten to twenty five percent of the Texas electorate that he feels like he should be able to count on the next time. He uh, the next time he runs, which and is these are smart guys. They're, they're smart, ambitious guys, knowing that Trump's probably going to go down. But now it now it's a race for 2024. And uh, Rep, uh, Senator Tom Cotton out of Arkansas, who's been a huge uh, Trump supporter, came out and said he was not going to join this objection and pretty much said that I have stood by President Trump for four years. Everything like I've been his most loyal ally, but I can't endorse this. <laughs> this anti-democratic movement and Trump basically tweeted back at him and said Republicans have a long memory and it's like not not a thinly veiled threat at all and I think a lot of Republicans like Romney Romney said this where it's just these are Holly Cruz these are ambitious guys that are that are looking ahead to to the future here and you know I just saw Holly on Fox and he was saying well it's my constituents are demanding this and it's, it seems like this is very much a, a movement for these guys. And uh, Senator Toomey, who's retiring, so he pretty much came out and said that you guys are subverting the American democracy at, at the expense of your ambition. And Romney said something similar. And that's what this is what I was alluding to earlier, where the Republican Party has just been torn apart. I saw actually a really funny tweet. I think you'll like this um, by a Washington Post writer. And he was comparing all like, some of the Republican senators to like publications. And so he says, Tom Cotton is the National Review. Holly's the Federalist. Cruz is Breitbart. <laughs> Romney's, Romney's the Bulwark. Toomey's the Dispatch. Sass is the Examiner. 
uh, Ron Johnson is the gateway pundit and Louis Gomer, who's a, who's a nut job from the representative from Texas. He said he was eight coon. <laughs> Which I actually is, yeah. like, like maybe three of those publications, uh, but Cruz being, well, I mean, some of the like Gomer's thing. Is, like, so I thought that was funny. And then there's, an, there was another Twitter thread that if you, if you'll give me a minute here uh, that I thought was really interesting. This guy, Steve Schmidt, who is one of the founders of like the Lincoln Project, which for people that don't know, is like a group of Republicans who a couple of years ago pretty much came out and said that we believe in ironically like traditional conservatism that I was referencing earlier and that Trump doesn't stand for any of these things. And they were working over these last few years to make sure that Trump wasn't reelected. And so Schmidt is a former, he, he uh, ran or helped run uh, McCain's campaign. He he was a, 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 like one of the deputy chief of staff of, of, of Bush. So again, a traditional conservative. So he had this, this Twitter thread the other day, which I thought was interesting. I'll be curious to hear what you have to think. And he says, Trumpism is an American autocratic movement with uh, fascist markers. There are seven specific parts that compromise this core. One, the leader. Donald Trump is the unquestioned leader of the movement. It is a cult of personality and the nerd, there are no serious challengers against his leadership. Stop me at any time because this goes on for a little bit. Two, thugs. The Proud Boys are but one example in a toxic stew of heavily armed militias, white nationalists, and other right-wing extremists. As is always the case, their ranks are filled with people on the fringes of society, the lonely, dispossessed, aggrieved, and resentful. Not so long ago, there would have been a near societal consensus around describing these people as losers. These people bring the menace of violence to politics and are akin to the same thuggish rabble that were wearing brown and black shirts 100 years ago. Point you've made before. Uh, three, elites. All autocratic movements fuse an unholy alliance between society's elites and losers. It is a coalition of convenience between two groups who despise each other but need each other. The boundless cynicism of the elites and the endless grievances of the losers become an unbreakable cement. Holly and Cruz are perfect examples. Holly graduated from Stanford and Yale Law. He taught at Oxford and, Kirk, and clerked for Chief Justice Roberts. Senator Cruz graduated from Princeton and Harvard Law. They have become completely faithless in their oaths to American democracy in the name of their ambition. They have no convictions, only self-interest. Propagandists. Autocratic movements are built on and sustained by lies. Pol political lying and conspiracy theories have become billion-dollar businesses. Fox News, Newsmax, um, OANN, social media, talk radio dividers, Infowars, etc. have poisoned the American polity and created the conditions for Trump to create an alternate reality that is now a lethal threat to American liberty. Financiers. This autocratic movement is financed by donations from some of a large, America's largest and best known companies and brands in the form of millions of dollars of donations. The list includes some of America's wealthiest, most powerful individuals. Mostly they are disconnected from any interest or idea of the public good other than the selfishness of self-interest. Six, and there are only seven of these, six, religious extremists. Trump has surrounded himself with a group of loony, corrupt, hateful, sacrilegious charlatans that make a mockery of decency and goodness with every public utterance. Sheep, seven, sheep. None of what is happening could have could happen without the silent complicity of a legion of men and women who lack the conviction, guts, and integrity to stand up against Trump's mean tweets and thousands of indecent, corrupt, cruel, and incompetent acts. These men and women are no different than all of their predecessors who found collaboration with what they knew to be immoral or evil as more convenient than resisting it. They are the weaklings and appeasers. They are the fools and naive. They are the blind for whom what is obvious and true is far less preferable to delusion and pretend. Um, and he kind of goes on to say, like, this is what we have to do. And cool. be like, we have to look at um, Senator Romney. But any thoughts on all that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's it certainly touches on a, a lot of things that I have felt before. And it always reminds me of that one that 
that thing Trump said during his election campaign where he was like, I could go out to Times Square right now and shoot somebody and everyone could know it was me and I will lose zero followers for it. And I remember hearing that and thinking that is like the most absurd thing. Say goodbye to your political career. And he was absolutely right. And I rem- and and once that happened, there for me, like, and even though that was <laughs> the least on the, the list of, of crazy things that he said and done, uh, but that was for me very, you know, he really knew that he had this kind of like this grip. Um, and, and then from there, it's like this ability to create w- what we've talked about before is this coalition of uh, voters who really have very, very little in common in terms of common interest. They found somebody who, you know, rewards loyalty enough. And I guess some of the things that they want don't conflict with each other enough to, um, to prevent them from, from voting, uh, you know, in, in single issue type of ways. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, not, not saying anything new to people on the left who've called him an autocrat um, from day one. And, 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 you know, all of the hallmarks are there. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that we have actually seen this before many times in history is not a unique phenomenon. Um, I think, you know, the point about money and media is, cer- is certainly something, but it's really that there is an appetite for this kind of propaganda for people who feel aggrieved um, and, and no longer look to themselves or look to sort of local situations, but want to believe in uh, a corrupt um, system, you know, and, you know, just because I'm paranoid doesn't necessarily mean um, I'm totally, uh, you know, doesn't mean I don't have a reason to be. Um, But here, of course, we see it in the, in the absurd or in, in, in extremes. um, So so as to just like, you know, I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Yeah. I've said this to you before, but it's, Trump has just made it so difficult to be what I would say was a moderate conservative. Uh, certainly, obviously, in my opinion, that made it impossible for someone like me to be a Republican these days. Um, and it, it's frustrating and, and disheartening and uh, dangerous for our country in a lot of ways. Uh, so we'll see what happens. This week is going to be fascinating, as so many, unfortunately, so many weeks have been. We have not only the objection to the certification of votes on the 6th, but tomorrow, the Georgia runoffs. Uh, so we'll see who, who controls the Senate tomorrow. I'm sure that election is not going to, whomever wins that election, it's not going to uh, be smooth sailing from that, can, given all of the controversy surrounding Georgia these last few days and weeks. And 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 then who, who knows? Who knows what else is going to happen this week? Welcome yeah. to 2021. Welcome to 2021. Till next time. All right, buddy. Good to be back. Um, hopefully, we'll have we'll have more positive things to to talk about uh, this year than we have so far. No, we'll have to do a uh, a good news only pod one of these days. All right, we'll see it. Yeah.
Keep out. 